episode 39 of the 25 Live. My name is Jim Bernica. My special guest this week, and actually next week as well, is Jason Ramos. So for whatever reason, I thought I could get all this into one episode, and there's just no way. There's so much to Jason's journey, you could, well, I don't know, literally write a book about it. So on this episode today, we're going to concentrate on Jason's early career, you know, him starting as a structural firefighting and then and switching to a wildland firefighter, and then getting to the point where he's actually rappelling out of a helicopter and getting that much closer to the action that much quicker. And then we're going to end with him and drill school for being a smoke jumper. And for those who don't know what a smoke jumper is, these guys are the best of the best in a wildland world. Jumping out of a plane, getting on top of that fire as quick as possible, just these guys are badass kind of like a Navy SEAL Army Ranger equivalent to the wildland world. So we're going to get up to that point today. The following week, we'll actually talk about him smoke jumping. We'll also talk about what he's done since that. Um, I don't know. How about writing a book about it? Also, how about starting a, a business in which you review all different types of products re- related to wildland firefighting? And Jason is able to say if this works, if it doesn't work, and also give those companies criticism on how they can make things better. So he's kind of helping on that end as well. So that'll be following next week, but you know, let's just get to it right now. Here's Jason. All right. Welcome everyone to the 25 live Jason. Good morning to you. Good afternoon. Good morning. We're on that little three hour West coast, East coast time difference, but that's okay. How, yeah. how are you doing so far? Not too bad. Just, uh, you know, Friday and sun's out. Um, I'm vertical today. So, yeah, it's a good day thus far. Yes, I had to go home and do my recovery nap from work. But now I am just here hanging out with you. And then I'll, no, I guess I won't go out. We still can't do anything. We're still under the whole corona thing when we're filming this. So, but anyways, I digress. We got a lot to talk about. Enough, in fact that somebody should write a book about it. I'm just saying. <laughs> and we'll get to that later on. Anyway, let's just start from the top here. Let's let's just start with you because it's to me it's all it's just talking to you the other day. It was incredible. You starting your fire service on the tailboard. Go. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly it. Usually when I say that people not, say you're not that oh. old. You're not that old. Yeah, this is- they say, how old are you? And I said, well, you ever watch Mayberry Street? You know, the Barney Fife and the police department? You know, we had old equipment, and we had an engine called 68R, and it was a tailboard. Um, and, you know, in, in Riverside County, that's where I started, uh, Riverside Ranger Unit, uh, Battalion 13, uh, which is the old CDF, now called Cal Fire. Uh, you know, again, 17 years old, and that's where you start. You're a rookie, and you're on the tailboard, and that was uh, – an interesting time, you know, you're a snot-nosed kid, at least I was, and now all of a sudden you're going down freeways and dirt roads on this tailboard, and if you didn't do the correct things as instructed, uh, you might fall off. <laughs> so um, pay attention and do it right. Uh, that's what is always instilled uh, by the, the trainers. All you got to do is listen, and if you don't listen, you do it wrong, it's going to be an issue. It's pretty simple. So... Um, yeah, that's how it all started. 17 years old, volunteer firefighter in Riverside County, and uh, things progressed as the years went on. So what year was that when you actually started? Uh, 1989. Okay. So that was – you were doing – at that time, you were doing structural stuff, right? Yeah, it was a structural urban interface – or how do you say it? Uh, urban uh, interface – fire station but we were adjacent our battalion had city fire stations in it that were in our department so you know you went down what five miles and now you're in the city of you know sun city or if you went uh, north you're in the city of marietta or the city of lake elsinore so that you know these are small cities too these aren't you know gigantic cities but um uh, it was a, a county slash city fire department where you went to structural fires and everything in between. Nice. D- different world f- from me, for sure. You know, all we do here is just structural stuff. 
I, I actually, I, I thought of you earlier this morning because we had a call come in as a brush fire. And I was like, and I actually <laughs> thought like, this is not a real brush fire. Knowing what we're going to get into with you. So, and it wasn't, it was actually a, a couch. But anyway, so I digress. So you did that just for just for a little bit before you got another call to go somewhere else, right? Yeah. So you know, you, my brother was a, a well-armed firefighter, and as a kid, you know, I'd remember dropping him off with my parents to the you know fire station. You remember the remember the green engines, you know, and learned about the Forest Service, and you know, as a young kid, as much as you you can, right? Those green ones, so that's the Forest Service, and the red ones are something else. Um, and as I grew up, I didn't know what I wanted to be right I was riding skateboards and uh, having paintball fights and BB gun fights and you name it right and uh, I had to figure something out I didn't love school I was having trouble with school and uh, my studies and I remember coming home one time on the bus and seeing some of my punk rocker friends that were on a, a fire it's like was that so-and-so? And I just didn't understand that. I'm like, you know, some of those folks out there remember the show 21 Jump Street, right? You had the, the police undercover guys, and I just like, what are these, 21 Jump Street firefighters? <laughs> What's going on here? Uh, so I remember the next day asking them and finding the, the gentleman and saying, hey, I saw you on a car accident and a looked like a fire. So What's going on? He said, well, I'm a firefighter. So, you know, first thing he asked me, how old are you? And I said, 16. He said, you're not old enough. You got to wait till you're 17. And we became friends, and he started making me do PT, you know, physical training. And um, I remember there was a couple punk rockers that were firefighters at the time, and, and they were just saying, you got to hike. And, you know, when you're puking and you're, or you're dizzy, uh, and then you're getting there. Then you're starting to do a workout. And I was like, what? So I didn't understand this stuff, right? So I just started hiking by myself and doing silly stuff. And when I was 17, I, I begged my my pop, my dad, to bring me to the fire station. We'd go shooting, uh, precision shooting every weekend. We'd go out long-range shooting rifles, and he took me there. And I walked in and, you know, gave me the kind of the speech, son, you know, you shake a hand like a man, and this is how you do it, and look in their eyes and be respectful and I went in there and did it and um, grabbed a piece of paper filled it out turned it in and a couple weeks later you go back and they say you're approved and then you go uh oh <laughs> now what so you go through the process a lot of tests a lot of written tests a lot of practicals um, a lot of feeling out of place a lot of feeling like um, the feelings is very odd um, as a rookie firefighter and trying to figure things out, right? From skateboards to fire engines and fires and emergencies and medical aids and all these things, right? So that's how it all started at a very young age, and I stuck with it. Nice. And very shortly after that, you ended up with the California Desert District, right? Yes. I, um, again, my brother was a wildland firefighter, and you start to learn these terms, right? wildland and and you see the different fire engines in which was called cdf back then they called it b engines and a engines so uh, type one schedule a and then uh, your type three schedule b engines meaning the wildland long hose lays chainsaws hand tools and that just i i was blown away at that i i liked it i don't know how why um, i remember going to a couple fires and these guys were just hardcore right you you went to a multi-response call with Forest Service and other agencies, and these guys were just different, very different. I said, ooh, I want some of that, right? <laughs> so uh, I remember I got on a wildland fire. And I was probably, who 18, somewhere in there, and I asked my engineer, can I go with them? He says, yeah, go give him a hand. And I disappeared with that engine crew till early in the morning the next day. And... uh I loved working with this this four service uh, engine crew. I mean, they were hardcore and they worked their you know what off. Um, and they kind of took me under the wing. They said, "God, this kid's you know this kid's tough." He's so I was just in awe, right? So after that, I applied and 
uh, uh, BLM called me. I remember back then, no YouTube, no Skype, no text, no Instagram, no social media. It's phone calls. <laughs> phone calls and handshakes, right? So I got a call and they offered me a job. And during that time, I was actually taking my, they call it a 32-hour or your red card through the Forest Service. They had a kind of a, like a volunteer training for recruiting at a very young age. So um, I remember the Forest Service captain wanting me to stay on the green side, right? You got the green side and the yellow side, BLM, <laughs> Forest Service green. And I said, sir, I just got to take this job. And he said, are you sure? I said, I don't, yeah, I'm sure. So the gentleman, when they called me at the station, it was, you know, he said, can you report on Monday? It's like, huh? So yeah, a lot of stuff going through your head very quick at a very high speed and um, you know, telling me you got to drive down here, pick up this, do a drug test, and then they'll tell you when, you know, where to report on the next date. So long story short, I started with BLM. That was another very unique vehicle called the Unimog, basically a bulldozer with wheels, um, just for kind of a, to get in your head what that was, we would sit under and have lunch. You could literally sit up Indians, you know, cross with your legs and have lunch and not hit your head. A very unique vehicle. And it would go anywhere, basically. We would follow dozers on fire assignments, which was pretty awesome. Um, pretty nerve-wracking, but pretty awesome. And then from there, I uh, went to Hell Attack the Forest Service back in 1993. So you you weren't, uh, you didn't work with the MOG very long. I mean, it's only about a season, right? Yeah, very short time, and I was lucky because a lot of times when you get on a you know new station or whatnot, again I'm very young, right? You're you might not get any calls, and I was lucky to have that short season, but was able to go to some big fires on Dozer Line. I already had a little bit of Dozer training from my old instructor from Riverside, basic swamper stuff for a Dozer, and. Um, I got a, instead of just sitting right, hoping for something, I was able to get some calls in. So that was just it's priceless because I could have had a season there of nothing, right? And that doesn't mean anything. You, you didn't go to any fires, <laughs> so sure. I I definitely got some time on a piece of equipment that's I don't think there's many stations out there that still have Unimogs. There might still be some in the desert district or in the in Nevada, but. Um, an interesting vehicle. Our chase vehicle, just to give you kind of a mindset again, carried the spare tire. This was a full-size Dodge Ram long bed. That carried your spare tire. Wow. <laughs> so <laughs> It sounds like something they moved the space shuttles with. Yeah, well, you know, it was the medium-size Unimog. There's a larger one, and we had the medium one. And it's funny, when you would when you would stop, it would just rock. Everything was articulated, right? The whole – there's people that buy them. And they do a thing called overlanding, right? They travel around the world in these things, and they are capable. They are an amazing machine. And one thing that ours had problems with, we were always breaking down. That was the second part. Um, we are always able to fix it. But imagine going Code 3 with these this big vehicle. You can Google them. All the listeners out there, just Google Unimog. And you know, our top speed, we, we weren't even doing the speed limit. We couldn't even do 55. And... It's pretty funny with lights and siren on going less than 55. People think it's a joke. It, they're like, is this thing <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> we're supposed to yield to this thing? It's going slower than the speed limit. And I remember looking at fires out in the distance in the desert district of California. Like, you'd fall asleep. It's hours before you – I mean, literally, I've been on calls where it's almost you know an hour and something before you even get there because it's, it's a slow-moving tank basically. So I, and I kind of, that's kind of a, a routine, I guess we're going to get at it. You go from getting there very slow to all of a sudden getting there very quickly, but we're not quite there yet. Um, <laughs> we're not quite there yet, but I mean, the next thing you know, you're repelling out of helicopters. Yes, I was, again, I was very lucky, you know, I guess for the listeners out there, um, I was very, very lucky to have great leadership. A lot of people say, you know, what's leadership? What is this? What is that? And I was lucky to have a captain that was taught by great leaders 
that made him, right? And his rules were simple. Uh, always tell the truth. If you're going to do something, I don't care what it is, you do it right. And if you don't know, ask. You go to the bathroom, you wipe down the sink, you wipe down the toilet seat. Simple instructions, simple rules. Uh, you PT every day, twice a day. Um, we're going to have fun in between that. And still to this day, you know, he, he gave me that core. And um, I got to meet these great supervisors from BLM and the Hell Attack. And they were taking me under the wing. And what I'm getting at is when I was on the BLM, you know, I wasn't someone who loved heights. I could climb ladders, 24s, and, you know, do lock-offs. But it wasn't my favorite. Heights wasn't my favorite. I was working with my dad in L.A. and high-sky, uh, high-rise buildings for air conditioning. And you have to climb ladders. It wasn't my favorite. So I remember my supervisor saying, hey, Jay, you know, there's a hell attack in the next next, next district over in the Forest Service. You know, they're looking at possibly doing rappelling. That would be good for you. And um, he would introduce me to these supervisors, right, superintendents and hotshot crews. And and I got to meet uh, hell attack 523. Um, his name is easy. It's his uh, fire name. And of another great, great leader known throughout the Forest Service, an amazing supervisor, very hard, right? I mean, um, he would put McDonald's applications in your inbox, right? Things you probably can't do today, but he did it very professionally. He said, you know, we had, it's funny because we had uh, our applications were for fashion bug. So, <laughs> so see, yeah. So, and he, and he knew, right. He made it professional. He would always tell me, Mr. Ramos, you know, McDonald's is looking for, you know, a great person like you, great gentleman like you. We'll take you right over there right now. We'll get you an application. Right. And as a seasonal, you always want your job back. And he'd always remind you if you're not doing your job right and you're not, you know, if you're coming in late and you're partying and this and that and all these things, this crew's not for you. This crew's not for you. And he'd remind you. He'd remind the whole crew. So when I met this gentleman, right, you go through the process. You're scared of him. I mean, you're just like, whoa, this is the real deal here, right? You're looking at their boots, how they're dressed, and and, and then you get another phone call, right? Report here. Uh do this, do that. And then next thing you know, I'm driving another, you know, four and a half, five hours away from home. I'm now I'm, uh, you know, 19 years old going out to a helicopter. I've never filmed before. And I remember my dad saying, son, you think you can do that? I said, I have no idea. I'm going to find out. And you know, I don't like to give up. So there you go. You show up the first day and pretty much everything is still, you know, going mile a minute you're getting all the instructions you're getting gear issued out to you you're doing the step test which is the old box up and down like going up the stairs they check your blood pressure i remember i failed the first time because i was just so nervous you know um take it again you pass they tell you to go drive over here to the airport you meet your supervisor again they give you some more instructions and then they say 10 minutes we're going for a hike right that kind of thing and um, I thought I was ready for that, as my dad would say it, thinking and thoughting. Never do that, son, because as soon as you think and thought, you're 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 not doing it right. And I remember going up that hill, um, getting ready just to pass out. <laughs> These guys were savages. I mean, I thought I was in good shape, and uh, they just hand it to you. They hand it to you, and they're smiling. They're whistling, literally. The supervisor's whistling. Not even a a pant of breath and just whistling his favorite songs. I was like, what did I get myself into? Are, so, are you even 20 years old at this point? Uh, no, I wasn't even 21. I know that for a fact. So um, I was just turning 20, uh, you know, going on. Because uh, my second season I was turning, you know, 21 and whatnot. So long story short, it was um, – I remember getting to the top. And we're not talking just a little hill. People can Google it. Go on Google Earth and look at Kernville Heliport and look at the hill uh, right adjacent to them. It, it's uh, the fast guys were doing it around 12 minutes, and that's full stair steps. We're talking 60, 60 plus percent 
Um, some of it, you're literally on your hands and knees getting over rocks, so, right, uh, vertical. <laughs> so, uh, and the whole hike was an hour and something. That was just the first pitch. And they had one section of that hike called uh, the tablets. And you're like, what's the tablets? And they'd say, you're going to find out. And basically, they give you a tablet, look like the Ten Commandments tablet, you know, Ten Commandments stone. And when you get to the end, you're talking in a different tongue, meaning talking in Hebrew. So they called it the tablets hike. And on that hike, there's definitely puke. There's you name it. <laughs> Make sure, you, as you say, keep your dime between spacing because you might get puke on you. You're going to get snots on you. And you might even get something else on you. So um, their PTs were very hard. They were not easy at all. Um, and you did that every day. And some days during, as a rookie, they were doing it twice a day. So kind of interesting stuff. How long was their drill school there? Um, as a hell attack, I remember it was, you know, well, it didn't stop. It, it just, it never stopped. Um, they had there as a new recruit, you know, a rookie. I remember being around a couple of weeks, maybe going into three weeks. Because you start off with the physical fitness, right? You're going through all your red card basic air operations and helicopter operations and all these S classes and your basic medical classes and hazmat classes. It just every day is classes and in, in physical fitness. So you just at the end of the day, you're done and you're ready for the next day. Um, then you got bucket drills, hooking up the Bambi buckets. That's what holds the water. You have um, emergency operations and, and it just never ended. But as a rookie, I remember around two something weeks, and most of that was physical fitness. Um, yeah, just hard hikes, run, hikes, run, hikes, run. Just it didn't stop. Now, well, I, let me rephrase it then. How about at what point were you able to go and actually start rappelling and and go to live fires? So when you're on the, the crew there, even as a new person, so that first year, 1993, once you get that training done, you're ready to rock and roll. And I went to a fire already had. Remember, we talked about my red car from BLM and doing some forest service stuff. I already had Riverside County fire. So you already have your basic. And you have to have all that before you even get hired. So you could literally show up, have all that curriculum done, and you could have a fire in five minutes, and you're going. You, you might not know what to do. But you're going, but you're going to be, look, you know, you're with your supervisors, right? They're taking care of you. Um, so that's what happened in Kernville. I remember between that time, even with training, I think it was that first or second day, we had a pretty long fire. I mean, I got home at 3 or 4 in the morning, and they said, be up at 06 at the heliport. It's like, huh? <laughs> so, right? It's, and you got to do it. There's no better go home. We'll pack your, help you pack your stuff or go home. So um, during that time, I had a, a fire very quickly. It was, I believe it was that second day. And again, I was like, this was after the hike, right? You're still tired from the first hike. And you're like, but you want more. I was pumped. You know, even though you're tore up, I was like, all right. I'm liking this. This is pretty hardcore. <laughs> um, and I didn't know what hardcore was. I thought I knew what it was. Uh, and it's a whole different level. So... Uh, rappelling was the next year, 1994, and that course is around a two-week rappel, learning the ropes and a whole different skill set again, out at a different station, different trainers with your crew, and that's all you're doing for that amount of time until you get certified. You either pass or fail. There's no in-between. There's no in-between. Pass or fail. So I passed. I didn't like heights, um, but I got over it. You deal with it, and I didn't want to be – I didn't. I don't like being – things that scare me run my life, right? I'm going to tell you there's things that scare me, yeah. Um, I remember an ex-ranger saying, don't say scared. You're not scared. And I kind of understand what he was trying to tell me, and um, don't let it run your life. So and then off to the repel world. And that went on till 1999. So from Hell Attack 93, Repel 94, all the way up till 
1999. A lot of missions. I actually have the first rappel on the Sequoia National Forest, so that's in the archives, which is pretty cool. Um, and our trainer was Rich Tyler, and he was killed uh, KIA in the uh, Storm King fire um, on July 6, 1994. And that's a South Canyon fire for those listeners out there. So pretty hard to go from training in May, spending a lot of time with a, a great trainer, Rich Tyler, Mr. Rich Tyler, and then uh, months later, uh, those guys are gone in a heartbeat. So I actually made made note of that fire. There was 22 shelter deployments and ultimately 12 casualties. Yeah, it was uh, jumpers. Yeah, it was an interesting, um, surreal. I, I just remember it's in my book. You know, my supervisor, he was sitting on the steps, and uh, I was out in our cactus garden. If you ever get to Kernville, go look at the famous cactus garden that we have there, still a tradition. Um, I remember just asking, you okay? So it's a, you know, it's a hard thing. He, it's like, I think so, right? And I already came from Riverside County. I was really dealing with, you know, full arrests. And first fire uh, back when I was 17 was a, a, a young boy that was killed in a fire. So I, I had some of that experience, but not my first that you had a trainer. Right, that you spent time with, and then he's gone. Right, it's like, how can he be gone? He's one of the best. How could he? What happened? Right. So, uh, interesting time uh, during that, and that that fell on my uh, birthday, July sixth. So, I was never one for my birthday, but still to this day, I don't, you know, I celebrate those guys, but I don't. I'm not a. Um, I just remember those guys. So. Back then, was there any type of peer support, any type of behavioral health stuff? No. Like, I didn't know, right, like, Warrior's Heart or PTSD, all these, you know, back in, you know, in the history of the, the terminology. Um, uh, what I can say back then, we had great support with our supervisors checking on us, asking, you know, like, easy coming to me by myself. You know, how you doing? They called me Snapper, you know. Snapper head, how you doing? So that helped out quite a bit, right? And then your other supervisor, right? Snapper, how you doing? They made sure they did it as it was like your dad or your mom checking on you. And that that helped out quite a bit. Um, and back then there was no classes, there was no uh, you know, um at 17, again, I had multiple family fatalities from carbon monoxide and and remember hearing the engineer asking is the kid okay i'm like what's wrong with me right and i hear him talking about me as i'm they didn't know was in the engine bay and i'm like am i broken (laughs) so um that's what helped me at that time and then years progress right you learn things more and more but back then no that didn't exist at least in my experience, didn't exist. Yeah, the year 2020, it, it probably does now, but it's probably, I mean, it's taken a long time to get, obviously, to this point in which you can openly talk about this stuff. Yeah, and, it, you know, it's hard, and there's times I've done interviews. You know, I'm human, man. I, You know, there's certain triggers. I'll, I'll get quiet. You'll hear to my voice, and I'll say it. Hey, I'm remembering some stuff. Um, It's hard, you know, for any of those folks out there and you know back then it was just suck it up you know no one really said that but it's like you know come on you know and and you thought that was that was the norm um but yes yeah, seeing right all the firefighters all the first responders out there we all deal with it seeing very young kids die and and getting hurt is is no fun um but it's um something i stuck with and so got to experience that day you know july 6th something i'll, I'll never forget and um, the years went on, right? We went to more fires and we practiced and the training continued even harder for Rich and more shelter training and more safety training and stuff. We were just really digging in, you know, how, how can we hopefully not be in that kind of situation, you know? Um, and I remember agencies back then would kind of, at least the word on the 
street or the actions were like, oh, those guys just did something wrong. That would you would hear that, right? Whether it made you feel better or not. But I never liked that. It's like, what do you mean? You know, yeah, stuff happens, but really we're gonna hear people saying, oh, they just screwed up or this or that, and it's like, really? Huh. So long story short, you know, we just keep pushing forward and you learn from the mistakes um and you keep pushing forward right you remember those folks and hopefully you won't be there right it's, it's yeah it's a never-ending process it's a never-ending story of training and and remembering those folks but that was one thing i was never into is going to these expos and how would you say firefighting expos and hearing speakers and just like pointing the fingers, they did this, they did that, and they did this. And uh, now with 31 years in, um, I know some of those speakers were actually, they were wrong. Um, so long story short, interesting day, and I'll never forget those guys. And yeah. So there's, Jason, there's no easy way to transition from that, but I would like you, and I, and I think this is probably a good point, to just explain when that helicopter lands or when you rappel out of it, what are you actually doing? Because what you're doing there is completely foreign to anything I would ever do. We, we, don't, we just don't have those type of fires. Yes, yeah, so it's kind of – I'll put it in some new you know perspective for all those listeners out there, structural firefighters or volunteers. It's just like getting on a first response. You're in your type one, right? You get there, and you're out of the, the station house or the barn in two minutes, right? You, you're doing all your things. Same thing with a helicopter. We're just fighting a brush fire, but we have standards. When we get that call, uh, that pilot is <laughs> getting out of that uh, pilot quarters. We're running to the helicopter. Everything's pre-staged. Helmets, just like a, a Type 1 fire engine. Helmets are staged. Shirts are staged. And we're off the ground within minutes. Same standards. right? we got to crank up, but we're – it's quick. I mean, it's initial attack. Hell attack is initial attack. That's why it's called hell attack. And our forte is to get there fast and put a dent on that fire, hopefully. Keep it small and try to contain it. That is our forte. So it's kind of like NASCAR, kind of just an analogy, but for fire, right? So we get a call. Everyone knows their positions. Everyone's assigned a certain seat. Uh, when we're cranking up, starting up, everything's clear to take off. Um, we're talking in the helicopter, you know, everyone knows their place. So as soon as we land, there's no scratching our heads. There's no, like, what do we do? It's all orchestrated. It was timed by easy for day in and day out of bucket drills, right? And if you couldn't get that bucket out a certain amount of time, you would spend all day doing it in triple digit temperatures. It was not fun, <laughs> but he was doing it for a reason. So we got on a fire. It was ingrained in your in your head. It was second nature. There was no fumbling around. And it was interesting to watch everyone do their skills and that helicopter take off and ready to rock and roll. So here's a quick kind of, uh, how would you say, scenario how it happens. We get a fire. Everyone's on board. We land. Everyone goes to the positions. We hook up the bucket. Once the helicopter takes off, we have our guys with Pulaski's chainsaws. Usually there's three to four of us, very small uh, attack crew. You know, it's called a, basically a short mod. And we're cutting line. We're taking the food away from the fire. And we have a helicopter with a bucket that has about 100 gallons of water, depend, depends on the altitude and the temperature of the day, that is backing us up with uh, water drops. So it's this ballet that you do on this fire and it works out very well when everything is tuned when you get everyone on the same page with all the training we caught a lot of fires out of the sequoia national force they get a lot of fires and we were able to catch a lot that were small and there's a lot of them that we could not um so that's what we do is hell attack and if you're repelling that means there's just no place to land so what happens is you go and land at a spot that you can reconfigure for rappel, get your rappel gear on very quickly, go through all your protocols, safety checks, fly back, rappel down, 
and now there's just two of you, two, four, six uh, firefighters, and your goal is to put that fire out. So it's a little bit different from you know structured firefighter, but the same mission, right? The mission is put the fire out <laughs> most of the time. Well, you you mentioned uh, Pulaski. Could you actually describe what that is? Yeah, so Pulaski's got a great history for all those folks out there. You know, you can you heard the 1910 fires or Edward Pulaski. He's actually the I would say the godfather. He designed that after the 1910 fires. So picture an axe. Everyone kind of can uh, picture what an axe looks like, and then a grubbing end. So if you ever did any yard work or whatnot, so you have a grubbing end on one side and an axe on the other. So you can fall small trees, brush, grass, you name it, and then you have a grubbing end to cut fire line. So you become very proficient with those, um, using them left-handed, right-handed. Um, there's guys that we have contests back then. You can throw them, right? Guys get very uh, proficient with a Pulaski. And when I mean guys, I'm meaning everyone, guys and girls. Um, there's no gender issues with me. When I say guys, it's both. So, um, and you get very good at Pulaski. And then there's things called McLeods, right? A big cutting edge with the, looks like a big rake, big heavy duty rake. You have shovels, you have combis, you have all these funny names. Uh, even some crews will specialize and make their own fire tools to the terrain or the topography that they're in. So like a Helitac crew in Arizona or New Mexico might have a different tool with all the lava rock versus our tools in region five, California, or vice versa, Alaska versus Texas or Florida. You have different tools for the area you are assigned to. Nice, so thank you for that. So while you're out there, I mean, you're doing this hell tax stuff for about eight years, correct? Yes, from, yeah, 93 to 99. Yep. So while you're out there during those years you would sometimes see these mythical beasts now not like bigfoot or nessie or anything like that but <laughs> these these things called smoke jumpers is that right yeah uh, yeah and it's yes and it's um before have we you, have you ever before, been called a mythical beast before i haven't well all right i've been called a lot i've been called a lot of things and mostly they're they're derogatory <laughs> Uh, things, but yeah, I've been called a lot of things, but not that. And I would, yeah, I can still consider myself a, a rookie, a rookie firefighter. I, I still do. I'm still learning, but yeah, there's a lot of names for those guys. And I could, I call them controlled savages, um, depending on the day. If you, if you back up, I mean, you went from going to these wildland fires in a, in a vehicle that topped out at 50 miles per hour. And then next thing you know, you're getting there a little bit quicker and you're getting closer with the hell attack but then you're like no nah, that's not enough i gotta jump out of a plane yeah it was again i was you know um i didn't like fear running my life i, I hated it i still hate it today right when i'm free diving in the ocean i don't like sharks i think they're beautiful animals beautiful creatures you know, I'm from the Jacques Cousteau area, Jacques Cousteau, and um, I love killer whales, but I don't like seeing them in the water, especially the an alpha male that's kicked out of the pod. It, it it's um, it's a pretty interesting feeling, and I remember being in uh, BLM at Alancha, the Alancha Fire Station, right? Six thirty six was their old number, or thirty six thirty six, and I would pretend jumping out of my bunk, you know. Because uh, I was going to go be a repeller. And then I thought about jumping. And and if we rewind a little bit, before I was even a firefighter, I remember watching a National Geographic of these human beings called smoke jumpers. I'm like, what's a smoke jumper, right? I'm watching this National Geographic. Um, I remember the room I was at, where I was sitting, black and white TV, and going, what the heck are these folks, right? And I remember watching it, and years went on of skateboarding and going to the beach and all that stuff, and then it became a firefighter, and then it came back, right? I remember those things called, those people called smoke jumpers, right? And um, I got to meet, when I came to Kernville, our FMO, that's the, our fire chief, that's a fuel management officer, uh, they call the FMO, he was an ex-smoke jumper, 
and just in a great a great leader. He would show you how to cut line. Everything was lead by example. Highly motivated gentleman, and I still look up to him today. An amazing human being. And years went on, right? I was pretty small. I was under 125, five six on a good day. Again, skinny, snot nosed kid. Um, and a lot of guys would say, "Jay, you're kind of small, man. I don't know if you could do the pack." Pack. I'm like, "What's that?" It's like, "Well." It's a test. You got to do it to 110 pounds, and that's the easy test. It's like, huh? Right? And years go on again. And then I remember meeting my first smoke jumper on a fire, and I was in awe because they're very different, right? They just they dressed a little bit different. Um, I remember watching him how he tied his shoelaces, how he brushed his teeth, how he ate his food, how he talked to other people with respect, how he was on the radio how everyone looked up to them there were leaders right it's like whoa that's that's one of those that's one right there right? so i remember staring at them and i got to go on a a fire assignment fire assignment with them on part of our fire in montana as a repeller and he was our um division supervisor and it was just amazing right just to pick his brain and ask him questions and you know he'd give you little challenges during the day and so long story short it just made me think about it more and more right and as the years went on you meet another jumper or one of your friends go to become a jumper from the hotshot crew and i remember these two guys went to alaska and one guy washed out the first day it's like what do you mean he washed out that guy can do pull-ups forever he got there and couldn't do pull-ups. Literally. His buddy said he choked. He couldn't do a pull-up. It's like, what do you mean? He could do like, I mean, on a good day, I mean, full hang, full down, full up. The guy was doing like, you know, probably 30. I mean, I remember this. Watch this guy. The guy was a savage. I mean, these are full hang. These aren't kimps. These are full hang. Take a break. Come back up. Whistle at you. Go back down and keep doing it. The guy was a pull-up savage and at least what i remembered because i was trying to um become a pull-up guy too so long story short that's at least what was told to me maybe the the stories altered maybe he had the stomach flu right i don't know i just know the gentleman washed out the other guy made it and he was a very tough gentleman and he jumped for years and i got to pick his brain right and you got to remember, since 1939 to date, today, there's still less than 6,000 jumpers that have passed. I think we're still under 5,900 since 1939. So very small amount of human beings have passed the course. And then when you start telling your crew, right, I want to think about smoke jumping, people start to talk, you know, smack on you. You'll never do it. They talk behind your back. They, Everyone makes fun of you. And that turned on the switch with me. I remember telling my supervisor, I want to be a smoke jumper. And he didn't want me to leave Hell Attack, right? And he says, okay. After bugging him a few times and him knowing my dad and me being serious, he said, I'll give you extra time to PT. And uh, I started PTing with a 110-pound pack uh, up the Kernville Hell Attack Hill, which is not easy at all. Um so I did that every day at work, went home, did it more, off-season, did it more. Again, I was very slow, was small, started to work out harder, and that went on for years. Went on for a train for four, well, three-plus years, and then I finally got a phone call one morning. So I hope all that made sense. That wasn't too erratic. No, no. I followed you on that. So... Once you finally get that call and you get there, what is that training like? Just to just to be even to make it through that academy. You know, it's different for everyone, right? It, it is. Um, what for? I can just tell you my story, right? So I already had a stress fracture on my, I believe my left, yes, my left leg, and. Um, my brother was a wrestler, and he was becoming an eye doctor. They're an optometrist at the time. He got me in 
under the radar to get a an x-ray and sure enough i had a, a pretty good crack right and got to see a specialist again under the radar and the specialist saying you can't go you you could get hurt um you could have an open fracture you get a pretty good crack and a very heavy accent and i remember him digging his thumb it's in my book in my leg and the pain was interesting. I've had kidney stones twice. I've herniated L4 and 5 on my back. I've been, if you ever meet me, i got some pretty good scars throughout my body and not saying um, Hercules or anything, but I, I got a pretty good sense of what pain is, I would think. Um, and I wanted the rabbit punch him on the top of his head as hard as I can. And he looked at me in a very heavy accent and says, all right, you can go. <laughs> So you show up for the first day of rookie training, right? There, there's a lot of things that go involved with that. You get phone calls before you even show up, and uh, they want to see your training. There is, again, there's no um, – you're not guaranteed to pass the four to six weeks of training. So when you get there, they want you in shape. They, You have a trainer usually assigned to you, the lead trainer. He calls you every so often after you get uh, the um, call that, to be accepted. So during the winter time, right, you, you're running, you're hiking, and they're asking how many push-ups you can do and sit-ups you can do. And you'll learn that these guys are writing this down. They're taking notes. So if you show up the first day and you say you can do 100 push-ups in 60 seconds, perfect push-ups, they're going to tell you, let's see them, Mr. Ramos, because on March you know, 21st at 0932, you said you could do 100 push-ups, and you can't even do five. Were you lying to us? So it's very serious. Um, they spend a lot of money, and if you take someone else's slot, and if you don't do your your homework, your PT, right, you're not going to – you just took someone else's slot. So coming up to the first day, you get there. Usually on Sundays, your first meeting, you get all the rules of engagement. What's going to happen? What's expected of you? You name it. And this is you're not getting. This is your own time off. This is Sunday. So that was a little bit different, right? It's like, are we on duty or not? It's like, no, you're not on duty. But you will meet here at this time. So I remember that, and you're not saying anything, right? You you just do what you're told. And uh, that first day starts, right? I can't remember if it was zero seven. I want to say it was zero eight in the morning. It might have been zero seven thirty. I want to say it was zero eight. Um, you're not late. You're there. I'm always trying to be there half hour early or even an hour early, right? You got the, sh excuse my French, but you got the shits. Your stomach's upset. You're, you're ready for something. You don't know it's even going to happen. And you show up for that first day. The trainers, you get introduced. You're in a room. Um, at least I was for my class. All the trainers introduce themselves. They tell you again the rules of engagement. And basically much say, you know, listen to what we're going to tell you. We're going to pay you. And you're going to get lunch. You're going to get breaks. And all you have to do is listen to us. And you're going to get paid to be trained to become, a hopefully, a rookie smoke jumper, right? And all the trainers have their different characters. Uh, some of them are very, uh, very funny. And some you just don't know if they're joking or not. And you're scared, <laughs> right? So... Uh, these folks go through that, and um, during that first day, you have a lot of things you have to do. You have to pass the minimum requirements, push-ups, sit-ups, sit-ups, the mountain half run, uh, the pack-out test, those things. And then I remember once you passed all that, I remember being in the classroom again, and one of the instructors say, you know, saying your training is now started. And in a very, you know, uh, interesting tone and telling us to very quickly get in our PT gear. So now we went out for a real run. It's like, holy, right? Now you're like, whew, what did I bite off this time? And remember, again, I had a stress fracture. Um, uh, as the week went on during that week, I was starting to fall behind. I mean, the pain was very interesting. I was taking uh, some medication for the pain and inflammation, which gave you the the runs and made you very sick to your stomach and didn't want to eat 
and you got to stay hydrated. So I'm dealing with all that stuff and didn't want to quit. That's what got me through. So every day is different. Uh, people disappear through those days. Every uh, next evolution or whatever you want to call it, the next station, people are disappearing. Not a lot, but people are disappearing, and those folks are meaning they washed out. So the next morning, roll call, someone might not be there. Or after lunch, someone not, might be there. And the trainers will say, hey, don't worry about so-and-so. They're not here anymore. Sit down. Like, whoa. So you go through the whole course, and they'll remind you. Uh, remember trainer saying, you're not guaranteed to be here, Mr. Ramos. You made it today. You might not be here tomorrow. Have a good night. Um, they're very professional. It's not about hazing. It's not about this or that. They want to see you succeed, but they want the best, and there's a reason why. When you finish and you're in that plane, if you're not the best, you could hurt people. Uh, to the highest extreme. You could take down a whole plane if you did something wrong. So it is as real as it gets. And that's what that training is, four to six weeks. And you just get done with it every day and you go on to the next. You learn that just uh, however you want to say it, minute by minute. And you learn those things. You're like, oh, God, what's going to be tomorrow? Like, like, I don't want to worry about tomorrow. I want to worry about now. Am I going to make it here to lunch? So a very interesting process. And that is still pretty much plus or minus the same since 39 to date. There's some differences there, but it's still – it's not an easy course. At least it wasn't for me. For all those savages out there that went through it and say, oh, yeah, it was easy. Well, maybe it was for you. I was dealing with a stress fracture and a badly infected right foot, and um, uh, it hurt. I'd rather have a kidney stones and some of the stuff I was dealing with with the pain on my, my foot and my leg, so – Long story short, I pushed through it and made it to the end. Nice. You know, on, on that note, I actually want to cut this off and we'll, let's do a episode one and then we'll do an episode two with everything else. Sure. But so I want to get you at least close this episode with, I'll, let's do some twenty-five questions. You got it. All right. So I got a list. Twenty-five questions. Um. They're all listed out. You just tell me the number, and I'll give you the question. How does that sound? You got it. So pick a number for me. 25. Favorite professional sports team? Whew, I'm not much of a sports guy. Um, I guess when I was a kid, you know, like some football teams, right? You always like the ones that were in your state, you know, the Rams or the Chargers. and uh, But I was more a boxing guy, so we'll go right into that, right? So Sugar Ray. Okay. Uh, Muhammad Ali, obviously. Uh, Hearns. Uh, Tyson, right? Um, and the list goes on. I mean, uh, all some of the greatest Puerto Rican fighters there, right? And it, it just um, – boxing was my thing as a kid. I, I loved it. So. Very, very nice. Um, how about another question? Another number? Let's see your five. I feel like I already know this, but uh, all right. <laughs> Favorite quote? Oh, I have a lot of them, man. It depends well, on my day, uh, day and my I, mood. You have <laughs> so, a you have a quote at the end of your book. You have a quote on your website um, by Benjamin Franklin that I that I actually I've never seen before, but I was like, I really like that. That's great. Yeah. So there's a lot. Yeah, brother. Here's a riddle for all those listeners out there. I call him brother. Uh, Franklin, and some people can figure out the riddle, some people can't. Um, but I have ties with him <laughs> and many others, Houdini and George Washington and John Wayne. So long story short, yeah, don't don't curse the darkness, uh, light a candle, right? And certain days I'll say it in different tones or different verses, but uh, don't curse the darkness. Um, make light, light a candle. I can't believe I've never come across that before, but it was that was absolutely great. Yeah, it's um, and you know, for all those guys out there like to dig deep, and even if you don't, sit there and think about it. <clears throat> think about the riddle I just told you. Think about these great mentors, because people always ask me, Jason, how do you, 
how are you doing things? He said, well, I have great mentors. I'm like, well, who? And I'll say George Washington and I'll say Franklin and I'll say some of the writers of the Constitution and, and some of the guys of the shot that rang across the world, right? 1775 and the Alamo. And they're like, what are you talking about? I said, figure it out or don't. <laughs> but those are my mentors. Those are my gentlemen that have come up with a recipe that works. We're not perfect, but their recipe works. So um, in my book, you'll see those quotes, um, especially Houdini and the list just goes on. And, you know, I had one quote in there too. I can't say it by verbatim right now, but, you know, pretty much says, you know, if I meant to insult you, I, I did it purposely. And, and the, meaning that in a certain way, not picking a fight, but, you know, there's certain times out there where someone might, might need to get a little kick in the butt. I've needed it. I still need it every day, right? My dad's gone. He still kicks me in the you-know-what once in a while. So does my mom. She's gone as well. And some of my good friends, uh, Old Kahuna in the book, that was a guy that would kick me in the rear as soon as I <laughs> – if he didn't like it, he'd let me know immediately. So that's number five. Nice, nice. Thank you. How about one more here? Uh, let's do three. First concert. <laughs> That's a good one. This is a good one, man. So again, this is for all the listeners out there that have read my book or listened to my book. If you don't like to read, don't read it. Listen to it. Um, first, well, first major like known like people know a band would be Rancid. But my first concert was back when you know high school. Obviously, bands from high school. But Rancid was my first. I actually got VIP. Um, got to hang out with Lars a little bit. Um, didn't get to talk to Tim Armstrong, but got to talk to uh, some of the band there, and you know one of the famous bass players, um, Matt. Matt, and it's just I was in awe, <laughs> in total awe. Uh, and your, Social Distortion was my second. Your very so. first concert was Rancid, and you were VIP. Yeah, you know. Was, I mean, how old were you? Well, I was a jumper. I was a jumper, and okay. like I said, I didn't go. I didn't go to. I just didn't do concerts. Um, I wanted to, but it was like God, I'm gonna go. And I knew Tim Armstrong's brother through uh, emails and whatnot, and we kind of. And I was rocking a mohawk back then, and and he said, Jay, I'm gonna get you. They're coming to Seattle. You want to go? This is via email, right? I never even met this guy. He's like, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so. He sent me an email, whatever, and got the VIP, and and I bring some patches. Like, just go knock on their their bus, tell them who you are, right? And that didn't go very well. Long story short, I bang on this van. Security guy comes out, and I say, Hey, I'm Tim, friend of Tim Armstrong. They told me his brother told me to give him this. Go away. They'll be out in a little bit, you know. And anyways, um, after the show was done, I got to talk with Lars a little bit, and. Uh, Matt was very nice. Uh, Lars was very nice. Tim was, he just, you know, he was tired. He went home and did what he needed to do. And um, and I got to see them again a few other times uh, in Social Distortion as well, Mike Ness. And, uh, so Rance is pretty big as a kid growing up, you know, that older teenager skateboarding. And um, yeah, pretty big, big thing for me at least. That's that's very that's a very cool story. Thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah. Uh, let's go ahead and I'm gonna have you do your plugs in the next episode. Sure. Uh, everybody else, tune in next week for part two of my friend Jason Ramos. So thanks Thank again, you. Jason. Thank you. Thank you.